So I want to begin the message today with a light topic. I want to begin by talking about self-centeredness. And if you know me, I'm a morbid person, so that's like easy stuff for me. See, I never used to think I struggled with self-centeredness. I always thought I was a pretty other-focused person. And that is until I started working through recovery. You see, I began to heal. I began working the steps. I began finding myself. And as we all do when we start to heal, I began confronting things about myself that I'd always kind of just looked away from. Anyone been there before? And one of those things, perhaps more than any other, was my own self-centeredness. You see, I just began to realize how self-centered I can be, how deeply this is rooted in me, and quite frankly, it's rooted in all of us. I think we as human beings are just naturally wired towards self-centeredness, a focus on ourselves. It's why our parents have to always tell us you are not the center of the universe. Am I right? It is part of our humanity. And I have all sorts of like sad or depressing examples of how this has applied in my life. I could talk about my marriage. Believe me, it shows up a lot there. I could talk about my friendships. You know, I could talk about my struggles with things like manipulation, control, yada, 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 yada. But I actually want to start with a more lighthearted example that kind of gets at how deeply this goes. And it's from my childhood. You see, it's about snacks and my love for snacks as a kid. When I was growing up, I loved Gushers, which is weird when you think about what these are, right? It's like rubber with goo in the middle, and it kind of tastes like plastic until you get to fruit. It's weird, right? I mean, I digress, but they're really weird. And I loved Gushers, right? They were my favorite snack. And as I reflected, I kept coming back to this pattern that would play out over and over again in my childhood. You see, I would go to school, and around lunchtime, I would sit down with my group of friends, and what do you eat first? You eat the real people food first, so you can save the best for last, right? And I would come to this time where I ate the stupid vegetables, and I would sit down, and I would open up my gushers, and it would be like, yes, time for pure bliss. Mmm. And inevitably, this same pattern would play out. You see, at first, I would notice that there was someone in my group who maybe didn't have snacks or sweets or even food at all. They had showed up to school without what I've been given. And the first thing I would do is I would have this impulse to share with them, right? I think in me, I would have this desire to just give them some of what I brought. But I wouldn't, because each time, the same pattern would play. I would look at them, and I would look at my gushers, and then what would I do? I would begin counting them. One, two, three, four, five, six, and inevitably, I'd reach the same conclusion. I don't have enough to share. I mean, how am I going to get by today with only seven gushers, right? <laughs> and we joke, but every time, this would squash that impulse. That impulse to share would run into what I have, what I think I have, what I think I need. And in that collision, I would never actually give it away. So what I would do is I'd like kind of look down, I'd do some of the side eye, and I'd eat my gushers really quickly. And there'd be like a little bit of nagging guilt in the back of my head, but not enough because I still never gave them away, right? 
I would just focus on myself, what I have, what I think I need, and it would stop me from sharing. Has anyone been there before? It's just human, right? This is part of what it means to be human. It takes intentional work, I have found, to change that drive in us that just makes us want to dive inward. Because most of us are stuck in our own head most of the time, are we not? And it's this human issue of self-centeredness that is in focus today in our next step forward in our series, God Part Two, where we have been going through the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew's account of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and we've been exploring it in this unique way, haven't we? As this true sequel story to one of the central texts of the Old Testament, the Exodus story, the story of God rescuing his people from slavery in Egypt to reshape them into a conduit for his purposes and blessings in the world, a people blessed by God to become a blessing. And as we've come to discover You can't really understand this Matthew gospel story without getting at the exodus at the center of it. It just is at the heart of who Jesus is in Matthew's mind and why he came. Because for Matthew, as we've come to find, God is writing through Jesus his next chapter of rescue, this new exodus of God colliding with our world to set the prisoners free. And as we're going to explore this week, we are at the point where Jesus believes that this kingdom thing is going to have to confront something deep in us, that self-centeredness that keeps us from being a part of what God's trying to do in the world. And we're going to dive into that today. But before we do, I just want to briefly recap where we've been. As we saw, Matthew began his new Exodus story by setting up Jesus as the culmination of the biblical story. It was all these unfinished threads coming together in a single point when God becomes flesh in Jesus Christ. You remember that, Emmanuel, God with us, coming into our world, colliding with our reality to do what? To complete his rescue mission, to set things right. And we looked at how this is all summarized with this phrase, the kingdom of heaven, which Jesus believed had arrived through him that somehow through Jesus, this moment of rescue was taking place. God's story was finally coming to its climax because the kingdom of God was here. And having announced the kingdom, what did Jesus do? He began inviting people into it. He began teaching about it. He began healing people through it. And then last week, like we saw, he began inviting in the lost and the weary and the exhausted to find a new kind of rest in him. And this leads us to our current section of Matthew, where we have begun to see people respond to that kingdom message. Jesus has announced the kingdom, and now people are starting to reject, accept, or oppose it. You see, Jesus has announced an upside-down way of existing in the world, has he not? He's used his parables, his healings, his teachings, his worldview, and he's just turned upside down how people thought things were going to go. And this kingdom message, increasingly from this point forward, is going to bring Jesus into conflict with those in power. Because, believe it or not, someone coming to turn upside down the way things are or have always been is not considered good news to those in power in the kingdoms of the current time. 
Is that surprising to anyone? Are you thrilled if you are powerful in a situation and someone says, actually, let's flip that over and let the first be last and the last be first? No. Jesus turns things upside down, and what are those kingdoms going to do? They're going to start fighting back. See, what we're going to find moving forward is that Jesus' kingdom message is going to collide with the kingdoms of our world and what they produce, human suffering, need. And in that collision, we are going to have to find how the kingdom will respond to these conflicts. And it's going to be a new, upside-down way of engaging need. And to explore this kingdom collision in response, we are going to focus on two stories paired together in Matthew chapter 14 today. You see, Jesus has been going about his ministry, and then the story just halts for a moment. It's actually really interesting in Matthew's narrative. We just come across a break in the story. It hits pause, and it picks up in Matthew 14, 1. We read, at that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the reports about Jesus, and he said to his attendants, this is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead. That is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Now, if you've been following along in the Gospel of Matthew, this is a shocking revelation. You might have missed it. You see, we've heard of these characters before. First, there is Herod the Tetrarch, the son of King Herod the Great. Who was King Herod the Great? You want to remember? He was the Roman-appointed puppet king of Israel at the time of Jesus' birth. He's a character in chapter 1 and 2 in Jesus' birth story. And what role did Herod the Great play in Jesus' birth story? Anyone recall? He killed a bunch of children. He tries to kill Jesus as a baby because he's afraid that God's king is going to usurp his power. And he wipes out the babies in Bethlehem as a trap to try to catch Jesus. It's a horrifying story. And then we've also heard of this other guy, John the Baptist. Does anyone know who John the Baptist is? Cousin, yes. He is Jesus' cousin. He's his friend. He's actually his ministry partner. If you remember in chapter 3, Jesus begins his ministry by being baptized, and John the Baptist is the one who baptizes him. He inaugurates Jesus' kingdom ministry, and we have just learned for the first time in Matthew's gospel that John the Baptist is dead. Jesus' cousin, his friend, his partner in ministry is dead. And this is shocking. And then what Matthew does is he gives us this flashback to tell us what happened. We pick up in Matthew verse 3, now Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because they considered John a prophet. Now briefly, there's some history behind what's going on here, and it is one of the most soap opera-esque stories you're going to find in the whole Bible. It is wild. So, Jesus, right? It began with the King Herod the Great. Well, that King Herod dies when Jesus is very young. And essentially what happens is he breaks his territory under Roman rule into three provinces, which he gives to one or each of his three sons. So we have Antipas, who changes his name to Herod, who is the character we find in our story today. He changes his name to that because he wants to be just like daddy in his brutality, his viciousness, his power. And then we have Archelaus and then Philip. And basically what happens behind the scenes of the story is that this family is a mess. 
See, Antipas, or the Herod of our story, falls in love with Philip's wife, Herodias. And what does he do as a good, God-fearing man? Well, he takes her, essentially. And they run away together, and it kicks off a brief civil war between Philip's province of Israel and Antipas's province of Israel. Drama, right? Sex scandal. Is there anything new under the sun? I digress. <laughs> but in this moment, John the Baptist, as a prophet of God, entered into the situation. And he basically began criticizing this new Herod, saying, you're a leader of Israel. You're a leader of God's people. You need to repent and stop taking part in this ungodly action. And how do you think Herod, who wants to be so like dad, handled the situation, good or bad? Probably not great. He throws John in prison. And that leads to the next part of this story we read in Matthew verse 6. On Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for the guests and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Prompted by her mother, Herodias, she said, give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. The king was distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he ordered that her request be granted and had John beheaded in the prison. His head was brought in on a platter and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. John's disciples came and took his body and buried it. And then what happens at the end? They go and they tell Jesus the news. So Herod is having a birthday party. He gets drunk. And in the grossest story ever, his niece, who I guess now is his daughter, kind of, comes and dances for him so well that he promises her in this drunken moment, you can have whatever you want. And in this moment of opportunity, she goes to her mother, Herodias, who's offended by John the Baptist, who hates him for his criticism of her, and she has her ask for John's head. And in this moment of pride, in this, I just don't want my dinner guest to make me look bad, you know, in drunkenness, he makes this fickle decision. He orders the death of an innocent man. I mean, this is a horrifying story. A fickle decision ends John's life. What's more, one more story of a Herod entering Jesus' life and creating what? Destruction and death to the people he loves. Matthew, I believe, gives us this story as one of those responses from the kingdoms of our world. What do they do when confronted by the upside-down message of the kingdom of God. They do what they've always done. They respond with self-preservation, pride, destruction. It's the oldest story there is, is it not? One more story of a powerful person trying to build his kingdom in the world. An innocent person stands up to them, and what happens? That innocent person prays the price. I mean, it's the oldest story there is. And now... We find Jesus receiving this news. Jesus, your cousin, is dead. He was murdered for this ludicrous reason. And on top of that, remember how the story began. Jesus, you are now on that King Herod's radar. He's on to you. He's noticed you, this psychopath. I mean, this is a tragic and horrifying scene in the Gospel of Matthew. And I think Jesus is hit directly by the pain of our world, is he not? I mean, he is hit right in the heart by this event that just exemplifies the collision 
of the two kingdoms in our world. And he now knows that that collision is going to come hit him soon. And I think what Matthew wants you to wonder in this moment is what is Jesus going to do? How is he going to respond? Is he going to go the way of Herod and retaliate? Is he going to seek vengeance? How is he going to respond? And instead of giving us a clear answer, Matthew does something really interesting. He just gives us another story. And I think underneath this story, there's this image of how this new Exodus kingdom will respond to the suffering and the needs that are created by the kingdoms of our world. And I think it's a familiar story, but I would just encourage you to maybe approach it with some new eyes, because I think there's something profound going on here. See, Matthew continues on in verse 13. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had what? Compassion on them and healed their sick. So Jesus, here's the news, right? Your cousin is dead. And what does he first try to do? He tries to get away to a solitary place to grieve. But is he allowed to do that? No, look, the crowds intercept him, right? They interrupt his plan. Now check this out. How does Jesus respond? Does he get frustrated because he had the story in his head about how today was going to play out and now it's not going that way? And does he blame the people for getting in his way? Does he think that these people are a nuisance? No, I mean, this is powerful stuff. When confronted with the grief of our world's brokenness, how does Jesus respond? He responds with compassion and then he channels his pain into an other purpose or other person focused action. See, I think underneath this story, Jesus knows I can't save John. I can't change what's happened. I know that that is done. But what I can do is I can help the next person in front of me. I mean, can you imagine seeing this? You see Jesus take this horrible news, news that if we're honest would make all of us go inward, would it not? To focus on ourselves, to focus on our pain, to focus on our loss. But what does Jesus do? He responds by turning outwards, not in bitterness or rage, but in compassion for the broken in front of him. And that's already beautiful, but this is actually where the story starts to get really interesting for me. You see, we read in verse 15, as evening approached, the disciples uh, came to him and said, this is a remote place and it's getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves from food. And I actually think this is cool. I don't think this is supposed to be like a how dumb are the disciple moment. I believe that in this moment, Jesus is rubbing off on those around him. He's rubbing off on the disciples. What have they done? They've been around him. They've been following him. They've witnessed Jesus' other person-focused way of living, and they start trying to do that too. They see a human need. Look at all these hungry people. It's getting late. And then they bring it to Jesus. Hey, Jesus, not sure if you noticed this, but there's some people who need food. That's progress. If you know where the disciples started in the story, that is progress that they actually see the needs of someone other than themselves around them. But look at how Jesus responds in verse 16. Jesus replied, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. 
Jesus says, it's great that you saw that need, guys. I am so proud of you. Now you meet it. And this is, <laughs> this is where I relate to disciples. Look at what they do immediately. What do they do? They start counting what they have as a reason not to meet that need. The disciples say, oh, well, we only have five loaves and two fish. Hey, Jesus, little problem with your plan. We counted, we, we got together, we did some mathematics. Turns out we don't have enough to feed these people. And what's underneath that? Oh, and by the way, this is also the food we brought for ourselves. And if we give this away, well, then we're not going to eat. So no, no, Jesus, you don't want us to give it away. Just send the hungry people away. Just get them out of here. They can go get their own food somewhere else. God will take care of it. God will provide, right? And check out what Jesus does next in response. Again, this story is too familiar, but be open, because I think this is powerful. We read in verse 18, bring them here to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass and taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks or he blessed it. And then he broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men beside women and children. So think about the process of this passage. The disciples bring a need to Jesus. He takes their bread and meat, he multiplies it, and he gives it back to them so they can feed hungry people in this remote place. Now, there is something going on here. There is a parallel taking place. And at this point in the series, I hope you will get there by me just asking a leading question. Is there an Old Testament story about people following God in a remote wilderness, growing hungry, and God miraculously feeding them with bread and meat? Yes or no? Yeah. Which one is it? The Exodus story. <laughs> the Exodus story. You are going to be so sick of this, and you're going to be so used to it, it's going to roll off the tongue by the time we're done with this series. In the Exodus, the Israelites are wandering and being led by God in this remote wilderness. And they grow hungry. They grumble to Moses. Moses takes that need to God. And what does God do? He provides miraculously with this thing called manna, which is the bread of heaven, and quail. It's essentially this miraculous moment of provision where God rains down bread and quail or bread and meat for his people to eat. And on one level, this story mirrors that pretty simply when it's talking about who Matthew is trying to tell us Jesus is. In the Exodus story, who provides for his people? God. In this new Exodus story, who provides for his people? Jesus. So who is Jesus in Matthew's gospel? God. Okay, we got the, we got the most basic part. Matthew uses the Exodus story to make this claim about who Jesus is. But there is a profound difference. You see, in Exodus, God directly provides for his people's needs themselves. But in Matthew, Jesus multiplies the food, but who meets the need? Nope. The disciples do. And how do they do that? Jesus asks them to give him, to lay down what they have, their bread and meat. He takes it, blesses it, breaks it, and then gives it back to them so they can feed and provide for the hungry people. In other words, in the new Exodus story, who is the conduit for God's new manna provision meeting the needs of our world? 
us, the disciples of Jesus. And I believe that these two stories are paired together in Matthew for a reason. This is how Jesus believes the kingdom responds to that collision between its reality and the brokenness that the kingdoms of our world produce. The kingdom responds with compassionate provision through us. What do we do when confronted by the heartbreak and the sufferings of this world? I mean, Jesus shows us the way. We come to Jesus. We witness his compassion. We let his vision for people in the world begin to infect us, to rub off on us. And as we do, Jesus believes we must learn to begin seeing the needs of others like he does. To begin seeing the broken, the wounded, the hungry, and to begin letting their condition grieve us to begin to long to see his world and his people made right. And out of that longing, we grow in our capacity to what? To do something about it. And then I believe that Jesus thinks we have a choice to make. We have to choose if we will relinquish our self-centeredness to get out of the way so we can become a conduit for the work that he wants to do the provision of the needs of others right in front of us through us. I hear Jesus say, bring me what you have. Let me take it. Let me bless it. Let me break it. Let me give it back to you. But with a new kingdom, other purpose, focused purpose. You get it back, but is it yours anymore? No. It's not for you, it's for meeting the needs that you can't help but see and be grieved by once Jesus' vision of the kingdom of God infects your vision. I mean, this is the response of the kingdom when it collides with the pain and the suffering and the grief of our world. Jesus overcomes it by allowing it to motivate the exact opposite action in the world, with every action, an equal reaction. But is it the same kind? Is it wound for wound? Is it death for death? Pain for pain? No, it's pain for life. It is suffering for provision. It is evil for good. Jesus says this is how the kingdom overcomes our world, by becoming kingdom provision for those that need it. And he charges us to carry that forward as his disciples, as his body. And believe me, y'all, the collisions don't stop here in Matthew's gospel. They're going to keep coming, and they're going to keep getting bigger. And if you know how the story ends, Jesus goes the same way as John, an innocent man under the bootstraps of Rome, crushing him for something he didn't do giving his life for others. Jesus tells us that we need to expect the sufferings and the pain and the grief of our world, but this is how we are called to respond to it. Jesus offers us an invitation to become kingdom provision that heals our world in response to evil. I mean, this, I, does this not wake you up? Does this not shake you up? Is this not exciting for you guys? Because this is why I get up out of my bed in the morning. This is exactly why my God says you can respond to your pain by being a part of the healing of our world. I mean, that is why I'm here. 
But y'all, I think this story also preaches, does it not? I think it highlights where we miss our calling, and it is through self-centeredness. You see, I think for some of us, the story confronts us in a number of ways. First, I think some of us are confronted by this story because it reminds us that following Jesus requires that we are willing to learn to see others and their needs as he does. And I know I'm going to nail some of you to the wall, but looking at the pain and the needs of our world is not fun. So what do a lot of us do? We just put blinders onto them. We're just like, well, that's not what I wanted to do on Friday night, so I'm just going to act like I don't see this suffering going on. We put blinders on, and we never actually see what's going on because ignorance is bliss, is it not? And in this story, Jesus tells us that when we do that, we miss the first step of our calling. He says, in that moment, we fail to let Jesus' vision become our own vision, and we never let ourselves even see the hungry crowds that have gathered in front of us. And when we do that, what does Jesus say? He says, you're missing it. You're missing your purpose. Your self-centeredness of vision is keeping you from doing what you were called to do, which is being my body in the world, being my kingdom provision. You can't be that if you refuse to see what you, the people who need the provision in the first place. I think second, others get hung up on a different kind of self-centeredness that's in this story. And y'all, this is the one that nails me to the wall. I'm just going to confess. You see, for me, seeing problems in our world is super duper easy. I'm incredibly good at sitting there and pointing out everything wrong in the world. And inevitably, as I do that, I start to feel like that means I've done something about it. You see, I, have, I know you guys struggle with this because I have had this conversation with a number of you about a thousand times. What happens? We get there and we're just like, Jesus, there's a problem. Check out that problem. Check out that problem. My work here is done. And then we get together over coffee or over lunch or over a beer and we just start sitting there and we start talking about all these problems we've pointed out and how we took them to Jesus and inevitably it starts to feel like we've accomplished anything by just pointing them out. And this story makes me realize that that's a self-centeredness in a different way. Because what that is, is it's me feeling good for seeing problems without ever sacrificing to get myself in the kingdom game of meeting them. And when I do that, I think Jesus does that thing. He jumps right into my, my DMs, right into my conversation. He sits down, he puts his arm around me, and he's like, yes, Mike, that is a huge problem. I'm so proud of you that you've grown to see other people's issues. I am proud. That is a good thing. Way to go. But having seen that, you do something about it. And I freeze, right? See, Jesus reminds me that in the kingdom, seeing is just the first step of this process because truly following Jesus includes learning to act like he does. And that includes getting up, laying myself down, and doing something as his body in the world about the needs that he's helped me see. And then there are those of us that get there, right? We see the problems of our world. We're motivated to do something about them. I'm ready to provide, Jesus. But then self-centeredness makes us miss the how. 
And y'all, I'm just going to be honest. I've had a lot of conversations with people in this community, and this is by far the most common issue. I mean, this story just nails a few things about this, how we miss this next part. See, the third point that I would put up is that I think some of us forget the compassionate part. I think for Jesus to do this right, we must have compassion in how we see and respect the human beings in the problems we are trying to address. Because when we don't, what happens? We often turn human beings in problematic situations into the problems of problematic situations. Anyone been there before? We set out without compassion. We just focus on doing something about this problem. We think we see clearly and quickly in our mind the people end up becoming the problem to be solved. It's not that there's hungry. It's that those people are in our way of feeding them. It's not that there's suffering in the world. It's that those people are preventing me from dealing with it. Self-centeredness tells us that our perspective, not Jesus's, is true. And in that moment, I tell myself, I know what must happen, and it's not getting done because those people are in the way. And what happens in that space is inevitable. I have seen it over and over and over again. We elevate our desired solutions over the people that we started out trying to help, the people right in front of us. And we cause more pain then we had never gotten involved with the problem at all. Am I preaching yet? In that, I think Jesus gives us a strong warning. You cannot be kingdom provision or do kingdom work in your family, in the church, in the world, if you do not set out with Jesus-like vision and compassion first. You just can't. Jesus says, in that space, you need to get your heart right before you start trying to fix everything and everyone else because when your heart's in that space, the other people are not the problem in the situation, you are. And you gotta get it right because the world needs you to be the compassionate provision that I've called you to be. It needs you. But you gotta get this right first. And finally, some of us let self-centeredness mess with the how. And one last way highlighted by this story, and we all know this one. You see, we may want to see the world change, but not if we have to lay down, give away, or surrender what we've been given. We see the need. Jesus tells us to meet it, and self-centeredness starts to creep in, and our first response is to what? One, two, three, four, five, start counting what we've got. Start telling ourselves, this problem's too big and I have too little and that means I don't have to lay this down for your kingdom. I can't feed them all. So just, just send them away, Jesus. You go deal with that. And I end up doing nothing because the problem seems so big and I tell myself I have such scarcity. And Jesus tells me clearly that's not a valid reason to do nothing. He says, I didn't ask you to solve all the world's problems. I asked you to just be the kingdom provision here and now with what you've been given. I asked you just to lay it down and trust me with the rest. He says, just give me what you have. Let me take it 
Let me break it. Let me bless it. And then let me give it back to you. Trust me to multiply the impact. All you need to do is to go to work with what you've been given, and I promise you I will do the kingdom building from there. I mean, that is the good news of this story, is it not? No one is asking you to solve the world's problems. We are being invited to make a difference no matter what we've got, no matter how many gushers we have. We are invited to trust a kingdom bigger than ourselves, a king and a provider greater than ourselves because we are just one small part. But to be that part, what do we need to do? We have to be willing to sacrifice and trust this new Exodus kingdom breaking into our world. And if we do that, I think we get the opportunity to play our own role as finite human beings in building God's eternal kingdom and healing our world. And I don't know about you, but that's good news for me. That gets me out of bed. That wakes me up. That gives me purpose. So, to close, I don't know where you need to hear this. I don't know where you need to hear the new Exodus provision story. You may need to just learn to see other people's needs. It may be the compassion part. It may be the sacrifice part. It may just be going a different way and hearing Jesus say, you do something about that. But what I can tell you is this. If we give Jesus what we have, if we let him take it, bless it, break it, and give it back, what he tells us is that we will become new exodus provision for a world that desperately needs it. He says, if you do that, you get to be the blessing of God to lost and hungry people. And I can think of no cooler thing to do with my life. Amen? Let's pray.